to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio. This is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Reporter Paul Munnies was in the House chamber when Governor Kevin Stitt gave his sixth State of the State address at the opening of this year's regular legislative session on February 5th. Paul, what were the main points of Stitt's address this time? Yeah, so Governor Stitt kind of had a wide-ranging, uh, about 40-minute speech, touching on, on tax cuts, uh, also on tribal relations uh, in the post-McGirt landscape, uh, talked about education, workforce development, some criminal justice reform efforts, and sprinkled his speech a lot with uh, references to Bible verses uh, and some references to former President Ronald Reagan's Shining City on a Hill reference uh, from the Pilgrim days uh, early on this, this country's founding. Now, why has Stitt found it uh, so hard to get any agreement on tax cuts, right? So this is something he, he keeps coming back to and back to, special sessions. Uh, why why isn't the legislature on board? Yeah, so there's there's factions of the legislature that really want tax cuts, um, but they're not all in agreement on which kind of tax cuts and what type uh, and how far to, to make the cuts. Uh, in fact, you've got some of the Democrats uh, who continue to talk about possibly uh, eliminating the state's grocery tax. That's also shared by uh, Republican pro tem in the Senate, Greg Treat, who's talked about that in the past. Uh, the House, meanwhile, has, has voted on several tax cut packages, especially on the income tax. Uh, but there's been nothing to kind of move the ball forward where they can all agree in one way, in one direction to get tax cuts back to the people. Now, the governor also talked a little about education. Was there anything new in that? Yeah, he kind of talked a little bit about the, the importance of uh, helping charter schools out, uh, maybe renovate some old school buildings that are no longer used. He said that the lawmakers maybe need to change the law to help that out as well. He also kind of went into some higher education uh, policies. Uh, he said that uh, he'd like basically, um, you know, some the state regents to talk maybe about consolidating some of the state's uh, colleges and universities. He said there's no point in keeping the subsidized uh, some of these uh, colleges with low enrollments and low outcomes in terms of graduation rates. Several uh, leaders of Oklahoma tribes were in the chamber. How did they react to some of Stitt's uh, discussion of tribal relations. Yeah, Stitt had a whole section of speech about uh, kind of the fallout from the 2020 uh, McGirt decision by the U.S. Supreme Court that you know, basically talked about jurisdiction uh, on former tribal lands and res reservations. Uh, and, you know, he kind of went into his, his, his spiel about, uh, you know, we need one Oklahoma, we don't need separate sets of laws for, for tribal citizens and state residents. Uh, but basically in the gallery uh, on the east side of the house, um, there were several members of, the, of tribal members in attendance and they kind of sat stone-faced stone during that, that section. And in fact, we talked to some of them afterwards. They said that they were disappointed by some of the continued divisive rhetoric and some of the misunderstanding that Stitt's put out in the state of the state and previous addresses as well. Now, there were uh, some surprise on a few criminal justice policies that Stitt mentioned, wasn't there? That's right. Yeah, Stitt came into office the first time in 2019, kind of touting a lot of criminal justice efforts at the time that were uh, circling around the legislature and the Capitol. Um, he did have success, early success in that, but it's this, the progress has kind of waned since then. Uh, he went back to the state of state arrest, the sixth one he's had now, and talked about the possibility of um, reducing court fines and uh, assessments on former 
formerly incarcerated people. And then also talked about uh, civil asset forfeiture reform, which was something that popped up before he took office several years ago at the legislature. Didn't really make uh, much progress then, but he kind of brought it up this, uh, this year in his speech and got some applause lines from that part too. What did Democrats in the legislature have to uh, say about the state of the state this year? Well, of course, they, they have typical press conferences after the state of state and kind of talk about what their reactions were to the speech. They said that they were kind of disappointed that the, the governor proposed a flat budget when there's uh, decent surpluses available. Um, they also said that they were kind of mystified by the fact that the governor did not mention child care and child care subsidies in any way. Uh, they said that's a key part of uh, moving Oklahoma forward in terms of both workforce development and economic development. And of course, they kind of laid out their own agenda for the session in terms of uh, maybe possible tax cuts for the grocery tax, as well as uh, in- increasing the earned income tax credit, which helps lower income Oklahomans as well. Now, Stitt did uh, kind of a little bit of cheerleading in the speech this year, right? He had a very sort of hopeful and optimistic, uh, very positive tone to a lot of the speech. Was that different than it's been in past years? Well, he's always kind of sprinkled kind of hope and kind of pushing the future, a, a kind of top 10 aspirational Oklahoma turnaround. We've seen that before. Uh, this year was a little bit of a different tone. It seems like to me after, after seeing uh, most of his state of state speeches live in the, the chamber, uh, he kind of had that hopeful turn. He's kind of maybe looking towards his legacy now. He's got basically two and a half years left as governor, uh, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, he's probably looking, he said a lot about, look, you know, imagine the state in 20 years. What would we need to do to, to make the state a better state for everybody in 20 years? So he kind of had that push toward the future. And I mentioned before, he kind of sprinkled some references from Ronald Reagan, uh, kind of big conservative icon. Uh, I mean, conservatives and Republicans in the party and his kind of hopefulness. Um, and in, te- in fact, Stitz had his own um, kind of push for hope uh, in state government. Several programs and state employees have gone through hope training. Uh, the first lady, Sarah Stitt, has her own hope program for for kind of um, inmates and com- formerly incarcerated people as well. So it was very much that that kind of tone. And he kind of he kind of did not mention some of the previous stuff that um, had kind of riled up the base a little bit more. Uh, he did not mention abortion one time during his speech uh, in the state of the state this year. Also, did not mention any kind of efforts on uh, you know um, diversity, equity, and inclusion things in higher ed, which he's had executive orders about, but stayed away from that when he talked about higher education during his State of the State speech this year. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read Paul's coverage of Governor Stitt's State of the State speech and some of the reactions to it. You can find that on our website at oklahomawatch.org. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch. She's here to talk about the ongoing effect of her investigation into a teacher signing bonus program reported in collaboration with State Impact Oklahoma. Jennifer, uh, just to get us started, could you maybe recap what the investigation found? Sure. So our main findings um, centered around these teachers who have been asked to repay some of their bonus funds. Now, these were really large bonuses that were given to over 500 teachers across the state. This was a program meant to draw teachers back into the classroom. So aimed at, um, you know, retired teachers, new teachers and teachers coming from out of state. Um, They were given 15 to 50,000. We found a couple who had mistakenly received these bonuses and had already received notices from the State Department of Education that they needed to pay it back and very quickly. And that was causing a lot of financial stress for them. And that story kind of blew up, right? It did. 
Yeah. Um, after that story came out, we saw um, a lot of interest locally from news outlets. A lot of news outlets, um, you know, did their own stories, um, even in national, um, you know, it was on Good Morning America's and the Washington Post. I mean, we've seen it um, go a lot of different um, to a lot of different readers. And uh, what did the legislator do? How did they respond? Yeah, that was some um, pretty swift um, impact there, too. I was surprised. Um, but we saw, you know, lawmakers from both sides of the aisle were really um, concerned about the way this had been handled and have asked the State Department to make it right, basically. And why do you think that story uh, so resonated with people? I mean, that story took off... Um, uh, we have a lot of jargon for this in the industry that that our podcast listeners might not be familiar with. So I'm trying to find the right words. But um, sometimes the story uh, kind of takes off, goes viral in modern parlance, right? Other news outlets uh, either run the original story or go out and write their own version of the same story, that kind of thing. And this is one that um, we can tell from the traffic to the website and the number of other publications that jumped on the story really uh, really took off. Um, why did this one resonate so much with people? I mean, first of all, I think we, you know, when we wrote the story, we wanted to center it on the people that were impacted um, and not just names on a spreadsheet, right? Like these are actual teachers with stories and some of them, you know, have been uh, working a long time. I mean, you know, one of our teachers had just had a baby, um, you know, had a big family, you know, I mean, it, I think it really showed how, um, you know, how much they needed the money really, you know, or um, just how much it, it could have really helped them. Um, but because they were facing paying it back, it was, maybe even more devastating, I think, because it was so large of an amount. Um, but I, I also think it was not just the repayment part of it, um, but the short time frame, you know, the department had given them till the end of February to pay it back or face going to collections. Um, and that just seemed really kind of unreasonable or like out of touch with, you know, these people's daily lives and like how difficult that would have been to pay it back so quickly, including the money taken out for taxes, which they never even saw. Yeah. And we um, for those who maybe are not familiar with the details of the story, um, some of some of the people who were told to repay the money got, you know, a fifty thousand dollar bonus. Uh, the state withheld taxes, sent that off to the IRS. So the net paycheck was $29,000 or thereabouts, um, and then got noticed that they were expected to pay back the full 50 uh, and eventually get the other money back from the IRS, you know, next year at tax time. Um, and these were teachers who, uh, you know, one was what a second grade special ed teacher, right? I mean, these are people where $50,000 may have been a year's salary or, or close to it, but a huge amount of money to them. Um, and uh, they, they had had the money for a couple of months before there was any indication an error had been made. They had spent the money and then were given uh, just uh, a month or two to scrape it together to try and pay it back, right? That's, um, I, I think for most people, that would be a, a very challenging thing to try to do. Right. I mean, I think you could really put yourself in their shoes. 
So uh, how did uh, State Superintendent of Public Education Ryan Walters respond? Um, so he has addressed the story in a couple of different ways. Um, you know, the day it came out, he made some comments um, to the media and had, um, you know, indicated that the teachers might have not been truthful on their applications. Now, we didn't find any indication of that. We didn't find any evidence of that. Um, and and then a couple of days later, called a press conference and essentially, um, you know, ha- said there were uh, factual mistakes in our story and called us liars. And here you can take a listen to the the audio clip of that. And so what happens when we have members of the press, some of you, that decide your goal is to undermine the programs that we're launching, not talk about the 500 plus teachers we brought to the classroom, not talk about our efforts to ensure federal dollars were spent by January 25th, that the money got in teachers' hands, and that those teachers stay in the classroom, but instead have decided to attack the program, attack our administration, and lie to Oklahomans. So what was your reaction to that press conference? Uh, I mean, I I think first it was surprise. Like, I I wasn't aware what the press conference was going to be about. I assumed it would be that the department had worked out a payment plan or, wor- you know, worked out something with these teachers and, you know, that he was going to come out and say, look, you know, we've we've figured this out. Here's how we're going to handle the situation. Um, but instead, it was uh, basically an, a- an attack on, um, you know, m- my work. And that was um, that was uncomfortable. You know, I I really value my integrity and um, and take corrections really seriously. Um, in fact, I had reached out to the department the day before when I um, had seen on the news that, you know, their spokesman was saying that there were errors and I, you know, in good faith, hey, what's an error? Like, I want to get it fixed right away. And the response I got did not, you know, it, it, it didn't have any, there weren't any facts in dispute. Let's put it that way. Well, and, uh, you know, in, in our business, um, any uh, bona fide legitimate media outlet um, has a policy that as soon as they become aware of a factual error, they correct it immediately, right? I mean, that's certainly Oklahoma Watch policy. Um, every every newspaper I've ever worked for in 35 years, you know, the, the moment that you uh, someone suggests you've had a factual error in a story, you verify uh, whether it was indeed a mistake. And if it was, uh, you correct it as quickly as humanly possible. Um, and so uh, what you're saying is you asked, hey, where, where's the error in the story? What facts are in dispute here? And uh, what did they come up with? So there was one thing. Um, Walters in that press conference said there were not nine teachers. There were four. So that was definitely something that we took a closer look at. I mean, we had gone through these teachers line by line, dozens of teachers, actually, um, to get to the nine. Um, it is true that there were four teachers who were later disqualified because they worked last year. But there were others who we counted in the story who were facing repayment for other circumstances. 
Um, and, and one of those we interviewed, that was Anita Hobson Malone. In her case, it's a dispute over how many years of experience she has. She says she has five. Um, the State Department, you know, first said she didn't have five, then okayed the five, and then came back and said, um, no, you don't have five. And so they're asked, you know, they've they've said that she may have to repay part of her bonus. So that's how we got to the nine. Um, and in and, and looking back at that, um, you know, I I mean, I I don't see that as an error. Um so what was really the complaint then from the Department of Education about the story? If if they didn't identify any factual errors other than, uh, you know, these four were asked to repay the money for these reasons, these five were asked to repay money for different reasons, um, was pretty well documented in the story. Uh, if that was the only factual concern they raised, what were they upset about? So one of the responses I got from the State Department's spokesperson um, was that, you know, they they wanted a story on the 500 that got their bonuses and everything was great. You know, they wanted more of a, um, a look at the whole program and what a success it was. Um, that's something, you know, Walters has come out in on TV and in, in interviews, in legislative um, budget hearings and said this program was the greatest success. Um, but that's not really what we do. You know, um, I mean, our focus is accountability journalism. And, um, you know, especially when you're saying a brand new program that just is still you know, has just wrapped up or is kind of still in the works, you're saying it's a great success. Well, you know, I, I want to see evidence of that, like prove it, you know, that, that to me, um, is something that, um, you know, just raises my skepticism a little, even maybe a little bit more than before. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read uh, Jennifer's story about the uh, teacher bonuses as well as the rest of her investigative work and our response to the accusations from the superintendent. You'll find it all on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, be sure to sign up for Jennifer's weekly newsletter, Education Watch. Reporter Paul Money's recently covered a special meeting of the state election board where members voted to dismiss two GOP election officials in Oklahoma County. Paul, why were the members dismissed? Yeah, so the state election board had a special meeting recently um, where they, they basically convened for a little while and then went behind closed doors for almost 10 hours or so to discuss the possible discipline uh, of two Republican members, the main Republican vice chairman and an alternate at the Oklahoma County Election Board. Um, and so they kind of um, said that they, they came out of executive session after that long um, meeting and basically said that uh, those two members had failed to certify election results refused to approve meeting minutes, and didn't disclose conflicts of interest. If you would uh, maybe give us some details on the roles of county election boards and the state election board, those kind of inside politics junky things that uh, most people probably don't think about much. That's right. Yeah, we take those folks for granted. They're the folks that kind of keep an eye on the election processes as things are tabulated and counted and uh, compiled. And, you know, they do a great job behind the scenes that we don't really think about much as voters, but they, they are key. And in fact, the way that the state has set it up, we have a state election board. Um, and then there, 
The state election board then appoints secretaries in every county, so there's 77 of them, and then the, both the Democratic and Republican parties have chances to uh, basically nominate people to be uh, a vice chair and a chairman of those county election boards, and then there's alternates from each party as well. Oh, you mentioned they were in executive session for 10 hours. Uh, was there any more to the meeting than that? How long did it last and how common is that? Well, this is this is really rare. I mean, um, the election board uh, typically doesn't meet for that long. Usually they're kind of there in a kind of a perfunctory manner to kind of certify other state election results passed on to them uh, or deal with issues as they arise. Uh, so it was fairly rare for them to kind of meet and then go behind do- closed doors for, you know, more than 10 hours. Um, you know, they nobody that testified before them really said anything at all publicly after the fact. Uh, so we, we kind of had to talk about people before they went in and asked them, hey, why are you here? Because the agenda items were very vague in terms of like possible discipline uh, for not only those two Republican members of Oklahoma County Board, but also possible action on the um, longtime Oklahoma County uh, election secretary, Doug Sanderson. What did the two GOP members say about their dismissals? Well, they were they were quite surprised after after you talked to them. Um, they they were kind of maybe expecting. Uh, they knew if they were meeting that long, there was some issue that's going on that they were taking seriously. Uh, I talked to one of them, Jenny White, and she said maybe she was expecting a reprimand, but she still thought that was too far. Uh, and in fact, she said that there was really no reason to discipline or dismiss either her or uh, the other person, uh, Cheryl Williams, from that county election board because they were just asking questions over the process. They basically said, look. We don't think that they're following the rules in Oklahoma County. Um, it's not the way we were trained. They both uh, took over about a year ago at that role in Oklahoma County. And they, they've sent letters back and forth to the state election board. They kind of wondered why they were hauled in there um, kind of for disciplinary reasons um, during that meeting. And uh, you observe this kind of thing uh, all the time, these uh, state political uh, meetings and issues. How surprised were you by the disciplinary actions? Yeah, I was I was a little surprised as well. I mean, you know, usually um, you kind of see these kind of boards and commissions act and they kind of take a, a, a softer route in the first uh, phase of any kind of discipline. Um, so it was a little uh, surprising to kind of see them straight dismissal for both of those members. Uh, you kind of think maybe there's some other stuff that they found out in the investigation internally that they talked about that we don't know about um, publicly. Um, and it was more severe as well. Um, they also had basically on one of the the members they dismissed said that they had gone out and put out election misinformation on blog posts and podcasts, which were later corrected after some time. But uh, maybe that was maybe an example to make of some folks who are out there questioning Oklahoma's elections, which from both sides and all parties have been very, very well run in recent decades. Was there a sense that leading into the uh, 2024 general election later this year, presidential election and uh, some of the uh, allegations that uh, Republicans raised four years ago. Um, Oklahoma was very defensive about uh, the system here, right? That that our elections have always been clean as a whistle, right? So was there a sense of, um, uh, you know, sort of looking forward to November and and trying to make sure that uh, nobody could question the process here? Was that part of uh, what led to the strength of the discipline? I think that was definitely the subtext kind of in the background that we kind of read between the lines. I mean, you kind of see that the Oklahoma officials, election officials have said, look, our, our, Absentee ballot process requires, um, you know, a uh, notary 
for any of that. Um, it's fairly well documented how those votes get into the system. Um, you know, when they, they use the voting machines, those are not connected to the internet at all. The only time they are connected um, is later on, and it's a separate part of the system that transmits the, the total results, not any votes. And we've got paper ballot backups. And so the system in Oklahoma is, is really kind of been very well run recently, and they've done audits after previous elections uh, where they've found tiny, tiny votes here and there maybe. And, of course, anyone that has problems has the ability to ask for recounts and look at all the audit trail for that as well. So uh, maybe that was partly in, in the background of like, look, we, you may have questions of other states. But everyone in Oklahoma tries pretty hard to keep everything free and fair and secure on our, on our election front. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. Uh, you can read uh, Paul's story about the dismissal of the two GOP uh, Oklahoma County election officials, as well as all of his other work related to state government. You'll find it on our website, OklahomaWatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.